90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing pretty good. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty well, though very appropriate to last week's show. I am currently encountering Sneet. <laughs> uh, yeah, I will tell you that my son is probably upstairs making whatever sacrifices 10-year-old boys make to get freezing rain to happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't think we're going to get cold enough. Um, but who knows? They'll probably cancel school anyway, so that's fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, we, we've been battening down the hatches on uh, on the building up at work because we've had some pretty significant cold air ingress issues and with this Ooh. this blowing sneet uh, i was standing by one of the personnel doors and you could like feel wind as if you were outside oh <laughs> wow into the building. okay yeah you should probably take care of that yes um you know somebody that doesn't have to worry about sneet Who, who's that it's our guest this week allison nugent <laughs> yay so we're really excited to be talking to allison about these things called giant cloud condensation nuclei, and other things that happen as an early career atmospheric science professor. Welcome to the show, Allison. Thank you for having me. So Allison, could you tell us a little bit about how you got into atmospheric science or however you would term exactly what you do and some about your background? Yeah, sure. So yes, I would call myself an atmospheric scientist. And I went to college and originally I planned to be pre-med. I've always liked science, I've always liked math, physics, chemistry, all that stuff. And I got to college and I found that the people who were doing pre-med were just really intense people. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I really liked to hike, I really liked to be outdoors. And so it just, there wasn't really this good fit. But then I had a friend that lived down the hall in our dormitory. And she told me about free pizza Fridays at the Earth and Planetary <laughs> Science Department. And um, and they also had hike hiking outings on the weekend. So I started hanging out with the Earth scientists. And I found that they're pretty awesome people. <laughs> I love that you were like, I uh, know, where are those dirty people that hang out outside? Oh, free pizza? Yes, this is for me. These are my people. <laughs> like, this yeah. is the best origin story ever. <laughs> Yeah, it was really just like when I was with the people who wanted to be doctors, I just didn't feel like I was at home. Whereas when I was with the Earth Earth and Planetary Scientists, it just it just fit. They just felt like my people. So I started taking Earth Sciences classes and ultimately, I don't know, I, I took some geology, I took some sedimentology, I took some oceanography, and I liked atmospheric science or meteorology the best. So... I went in that direction, and here I am. They're definitely the most mathy. Um, having gone through both of those programs, I can tell you, yeah, geologists cry a lot when there's math involved. So, <laughs> yes, that's true. It's yeah. definitely the most, the most math yes. intensive. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and then so at the end of undergrad, a lot of my friends were applying for different grad programs. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, so I thought I'll put, I'll apply for a grad program too. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> That's so the did. worst peer pressure ever, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My best, best friend was, she was applying for jobs that were like real jobs. She had to go on these job interviews where she had to wear pencil skirts and high heels. And I really didn't want to do that. And so I applied for grad school. <laughs> 
Which is exactly perfect, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's You're like, funny. I need... I need four more years of sweats, thanks. <laughs> yeah. It's really funny because when you talk to most meteorologists or atmospheric scientists, they have some defining event. They're like, this hurricane in this year or this snowstorm when I was this age made me want to be a meteorologist. But I don't have a story like that. And I think I'm by far a minority in that respect. I love this so much because I don't either. And I hated being in classes as an undergrad and having to listen to all of these people. I sat next to a person who said, I've always loved storms. My mom said that when I was in the womb and it was thundering, I would go crazy. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) That is next level. It was. And I was like, these are not, I don't know what's happening here. And I got into it because I was scared to death of thunderstorms, like scared to death of tornadoes. And I grew up in Oklahoma, so that's not good. And I just thought maybe I should learn about them and I won't be scared. And everyone would look at me like, you're scared of tornadoes? What kind of freak show are you? But, you know, no, I'm not, (laughs) but (laughs) whatever. (laughs) It it is interesting, sort of the the paths that, you know, like, I don't have an origin story that way either. Uh, and it does seem like a lot of Mets are like, you know, well, September 1st of 1993, this yes. this thing was happening. Uh, but I, I am curious. So you said you took some geology, some oceanography, did sedimentology, which is sort of Shannon's area. What was it about the atmospheric sciences that really drew you in? Hmm. That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was gonna say there's a lot of math in like pure sedimentology but it's hard to find people that do that yeah I and, and that's where I think my answer was going to go in that I, I always liked science and math because there was always a clear answer it was either right or it was wrong whereas in fields like writing or English it's you know it's open to interpretation and so i could i i didn't understand why i wasn't getting a hundred a hundred percent it like it seemed like it was just up to the opinion of the teacher oh. <laughs> yeah you're not a geologist this is correct and yeah so i think that that i was more attracted to the math focus of atmospheric sciences because it was either right or wrong that's right up your yes. alley, John. That, that is that is exactly why I do geophysics, uh, exactly. and because uh, as as Dilbert said in one of his comics, geology is just liquor and guessing. <laughs> Wait, let me take a drink of my white claw here. But no, no, geology really is. There are some very quantitative geologists, but I definitely see that that in the atmospheric sciences, we we can describe the fluid flow and granted we end up throwing out a lot of those terms because it takes a long time to do the calculations but in geology most of the time <laughs> we can't even describe it we don't even do the calculations you're correct <laughs> yeah I hope That's I'm not sedimentology is <laughs> oh no <laughs> remember the tagline is uh, it's not an exact science so, yep uh, <laughs> uh, but so along your way what did did you have any unexpected turns or how did you end up getting to study what you do now so 
My PhD project was mostly decided based on what school and what advisor I worked with. So I had two offers. And actually, surprisingly, both had to do with mountain meteorology. But one was at University of Washington, the other one was at Yale. And when I was talking to my potential future advisors on the phone, they said, oh, you could do this kind of project. You could do something like this, like this. And I found that the biggest difference was that one advisor, the one at the University of Washington, was describing projects related to numerics, so computer modeling, all, all computational on the computer. Whereas the person that I ultimately ended up working with at Yale was describing observational projects. Like, oh, we can go down into the Caribbean and fly in an airplane and measure the clouds over a mountain. <laughs> and it sounded a whole lot more interesting and a lot more fun than doing something exclusively on the computer. Wow. See, and that's why I chose geology instead of meteorology for my master's was that I was stuck behind the computer and I wanted to go outside. I should have just called around more, I guess. <laughs> yeah, just call around more. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so the, the project that I ended up doing was because my future PhD advisor had this project funded, and then I got to participate in it. But now that I'm a, a PI or a principal investigator that gets to write proposals to do things, I like to write proposals for projects that I actually want to do things that I will enjoy doing day to day. So. Okay. So as a PI, I know, you know, writing these proposals is no small task and Shannon's deep in this. Right I now. am. Uh, <laughs> and I guess two cycles ago, I was pretty deep in one and it's, it's a lot of work. So you've got to really be pretty passionate about what you're doing. And then a lot of the times, some of the really fun parts you end up having your grad students do. Uh, so <laughs> how's that transition been from being a very active and involved participant in a project to having to be the one to deal with, you know, learning about all the budgetary stuff that you have to do and all these other statements that go into the funding proposal that aren't related to the core? It's definitely a huge learning curve. It's something that I wasn't taught in graduate school, and I think many, many students are not. Um, and you're right, it's a huge transition to not be the one who's actually doing the things that you proposed. You're trying to train someone else to do it. Um, but I will say that I stay pretty involved in the research that my group is doing, in part because many of my students don't have a car or don't have a license. And so I end up being the one who has to drive them to the place where we're doing field work. And then, <laughs> and then I get to take part in it as well. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you mentioned it to begin with, but the reason that I don't have to deal with ice phase precipitation is because I'm uh, at the University of Hawaii, yes, uh, which is based <laughs> right in Honolulu on the island of Oahu. And so uh, a lot of students that are here, they come from somewhere else and they don't have a car here on island and they don't really need one. The public transportation is all right. And most of the housing is quite close to the school. So, so yeah, I'm a, I'm a taxi driver for my students. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. So how long have you been in Honolulu? So I've been here just over three years. Okay. And I imagine that was also quite a transition. Yeah, exactly. You're from the Northeast originally, right? So, I mean, how taxing is it living on the beach? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I grew up in Massachusetts originally, just south of Boston. And I find that, so people expect, oh, you live in Hawaii, you must go surfing every day, you basically live on the beach. <laughs> it's not exactly like that. Like, I do yeah. go to work every day, sometimes <laughs> even on the weekends. <laughs> um, but I think the biggest difference is that in the Northeast or somewhere where it's cold a lot of the year, when you have a nice weather day, you feel extreme pressure to enjoy it. Whereas here, it's always nice. Like, like it's always nice. And so I don't feel like, oh, I have to go surfing or swimming today because I can't go tomorrow because I, I can go tomorrow. And so it's actually not that bad going to work when it's nice out. See, that seems like it might be dangerous where you get lulled into, you know, well, it's going to be nice forever. So I'm just going to keep working on this next proposal. <laughs> yep, that's true. That's true. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. That's why I live here instead of Hawaii. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, but but it is as nice as you would expect. It's it's really temperate. It gets pretty warm in the summertime, but most of the year I have the windows open. And even in my office, my office opens to the outdoors. And that's my favorite part. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's unusual. <laughs> yeah, I get a breeze right in through my main door. It's, it's oh, really man. nice. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. So... What would you say your main research focus is right now? What have you been writing a lot of these proposals about and excited about? So the, the overarching umbrella of my research, I would say, is mountain meteorology, which is the study of how mountains modify airflow and affect or modify precipitation patterns just by the fact that you have a mountain there that air has to move around, either up and over or around. And so a lot of my proposals have to do with orographic precipitation. So orographic means of or relating to mountains. And then precipitation, of course, encompasses things like rain, but also snow and other types of, of falling water types. Um, and orographic precipitation for islands like, like Oahu or the Hawaiian Islands is really important because that's our primary source for fresh water. And so there's a lot of work going on trying to understand, you know, what is the future of our water resources on islands? Will we have a change in the precipitation pattern? Will we have more or less water going forward due to things like um, circulation patterns that may shift or change due to climate change? So um, one of the projects, I think the one that John, you're most familiar with is my project to sample giant cloud condensation nuclei, which is basically salt in the atmosphere. So if you go to the beach, you may know that you you wind up sticky. You know, your skin kind of feels sticky when you're done. Even if you didn't go for a swim, you just feel sticky. And that's because you have salt stuck onto your skin. And what I do is I go and I try to sample the size and the number of those salt particles salt particles in the atmosphere. And the reason is because it is hypothesized to affect the precipitation patterns or how fast it rains on coastlines around the world. So I love this question and like this whole process. I'm sure, Allison, you haven't listened to a bunch of our shows because I'm obsessed with cloud condensation nuclei. As okay. well as orographic <laughs> effects. As 
Exactly. As well <laughs> as for graphic lift. It's my favorite thing to draw on the board. Everyone always gets 100% of it on my test because I draw this little cactus with these little sunglasses. But anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, these are like my two favorite things. And I love the fact like, how do you get salt in the atmosphere? And it's like these exploding bubbles in the ocean. And to think about, I teach earth history and also paleoclimate classes. And so it's like to think about how the amounts and sizes and types of cloud condensation nuclei change climate in deep time is just unbelievable to me to think about, like how the saltiness of the ocean could affect the type of clouds that form. That's so cool. Yeah, it's it's not necessarily the, the type of clouds, but so if, I don't know if you've been to a tropical place, maybe even in, a, in the deep south you need this, but sometimes you'll find rice inside of a salt shaker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, mm-hmm. the reason is because the, the rice is right. hopefully going to absorb some of the water so that the salt right. doesn't stick together. Mm-hmm. So the, the salt is very hygroscopic. It really likes water. And s- did I say rice? I meant salt. The salt is very hygroscopic. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and so when you have salt in the atmosphere, the salt there grows faster. The, the water that condenses onto the salt, that cloud droplet will grow faster than one without salt because it has that solute inside of it that helps it to grow quicker. And so when you have the question of why does it rain so close to a coastline when air is being lifted by a mountain, one of the responses or one of the potential answers is that the salt in the atmosphere is helping to make it rain so quickly. That's totally going into my lectures. I don't talk about that, but I am now. That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) So hence the giant CCN versus just regular CCN, huh? Yeah, so salt are generally larger. Salt particles are generally larger. So they're called giant cloud condensation nuclei, or GCCN, as opposed to just CCN. So GCCN are usually around uh, 1 to 15 microns in size. So they're almost like small cloud droplets themselves, but they're salt particles. Right, which it, it's funny, and you know we, we find this all the time in different fields of science. You know, we say giant, but it's still smaller than the, a hair because a hair is about twenty microns. <laughs> yeah, <or so>. exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's giant for a CCN, but it, yes, it's still very very small. <laughs> so th- these are, even though they're giant and. That they're still pretty small. So you said you go out and measure these. How can you, how can you measure them? Yeah. So I fly a kite on the windward coastline, which means the coastline that the wind comes towards, um, and I attach instruments to the kite string, and I send them up on the kite line. And at altitude, when I'm at the desired altitude where I want to sample, I expose a slide that's about the size of my pinky finger. And I leave it there for about 10 minutes. And the salt that's in the atmosphere, just floating along with the wind, impacts onto the slide. And then I can bring those slides back to the lab. I actually send them to a lab at NCAR in Boulder, Colorado. And in a special chamber microscope, we bring the humidity in that chamber up to about 90%. And in that environment, cap droplets grow. So water droplets grow on top of the salt particles that are on the slide. 
And from that, we can digitally image the slide and see the size of those water cap droplets. And from that, back out the mass of salt that must have been there to create that water drop. Okay, so you put this slide out and then these things, did they stick to it? Do they kind of splat on it? Do they deform when they, what's the, what's the actual process of them getting captured onto the slide? So they're, they're wetted in the environment. They're like, like moist salt particles. So they stick onto the slide. If they're super large, they might splatter, but you don't really want them to splatter because then they can show up as smaller individual salt particles, right? Like if you have one big one that splatters into multiple, that's bad. <laughs> it's better. Right. It's better if it stays as an individual piece. Um, but the, doing it to, from a kite platform, it, it, that's something that you've been working on. It's not necessarily the way that it's traditionally been measured, right? Or have kites been used in the past to do this? I don't believe they have, no. So the, the, the best way to measure the giant cloud condensation nuclei size distribution has historically been by aircraft. So same thing, you expose a slide to the free atmosphere outside of the airplane but you're flying along at 100 meters per second. And so what I'm trying to do is instead of taking these measurements out over the open ocean at specific times or like specific locations, I want to build up a climatology of the sea salt aerosol size distribution over different wind speeds, different seasons, different temperatures, so that we can get a sense for how the sea salt aerosol size distribution changes with different wave conditions or different wind conditions. I mean, it sounds like you need to uh, buzz people on the beach with your own C-130. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I get a billion dollars, I'll right. do that. <laughs> uh, so, so traditionally it's been done with aircraft, but then you developed the, this kite process. And I would assume not only from the aircraft operating expense, but you know, the availability is low. So with this, you can go out and sample whenever you want and probably for quite a bit less money. Orders and orders of magnitude, I would imagine. Orders of magnitude, absolutely. Yeah, so that's the key benefit of doing it this way is when you have an aircraft field campaign, it'll be for maybe two or three or four weeks in one specific location. But it's so expensive. It's really limited in time and space. And so, yeah, using a kite platform, the wind is free. The kite I already paid for. <laughs> I don't have to pay for fuel. <laughs> and so it brings down the costs astronomically. So why use a kite and not a drone? Yeah, I get that question a lot. Mm -hmm. The I, I think I will try to, do, to use a drone as well. But the problem with drones is that you can only fly them up to 400 feet unless you get special FAA permissions. Mm -hmm. Whereas with kite restrictions, if your kite weighs less than, I think it's five pounds, you can fly it much higher than 400 feet. Oh, okay. I did not know that. And, and the, other, the other thing is battery life. So if I want to leave it stationary for more than 10 or 15 or 20 minutes, you can't really do that with a drone. Mm -hmm. Whereas with a kite, I could leave it up there for, you know, 24 hours or more. Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't have any trouble flying. 
So how big of a kite are we talking? I imagine this isn't the little, you know, kind of off shape square thing that uh, has a little tail on it. You probably need to lift some significant mass. I can imagine just the weight of the line to get to altitudes that you want to get to could be pretty heavy. It's not, it's not so large. So I'm, let's see, I'm about five, five and my, my wingspan should be about that. Right. (laughs) I think the, the kite is about, it's a little bit longer, maybe six feet wide. I use what's called a Delta Conine kite. So Delta in that it's triangle shaped, and then it has kind of a box kite in the middle, which gives it a little bit more stability. But the wind speeds are usually around five or 10 meters per second, which is what, 10 or 20 miles per hour. And the kite string that I use is a braided fishing line that's really, really small. It's expensive. Actually, the, the kite line is more expensive than the kite itself um, for, for exactly that reason. You want it to be lightweight and you also want it to be really thin so that it doesn't have a lot of drag from the wind. Is okay, this like... Right. And then... Oh, sorry, go ahead, Shannon. Is this like... This isn't a research kite. Is this just a kite people normally use? I mean, the ones I looked up, the pictures, they're all rainbow colored, so... I'm guessing. Yep, mine is rainbow colored. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, there's a spectacular kite store in Boulder, Colorado called Into the Wind. It's right on Pearl Street. They have all sorts of fun toys there. And um, that's where I get my kites. <laughs> that's amazing. Really, I love that store. <laughs> I love that store too. <laughs> it's very cool. Shannon, you have to make a, make a trip out there. Oh, yeah. I haven't been to Pearl Street for quite some time. So uh, I'll go out there this summer. <laughs> Yeah, it's a so, spectacular store, and they have an amazing selection of kites. Well, and Shan said, is it a research kite? I mean, you do research with it, so it's definitely definitely a research kite now. I- <laughs> uh. Okay, but I mean, you, yeah. but anybody could buy it. Right. It's not, it's not any different than what, you know, if you wanted to have a good, good day flying kites, you could get one of these things. Yeah, that's amazing. So do you tie this thing off to like the bumper of your car or <laughs> bury something on the beach or how do you you just pay you some kid right you just say here's 20 bucks kid have fun <laughs> i really like the bumper idea um but no i have this i have this really uh, jerry-rigged setup where i have a milk crate with the deep cycle battery that powers my powered fishing reel <laughs> yes. holding it down and then a tripod that holds the fishing reel and it's all kind of uh, bungee corded together. <laughs> all right. <laughs> this is science. I love it so much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. yeah, it actually makes a really a really firm platform. You can't lift it even under really strong wind conditions. It's never blown away. It works pretty well. And it was, you know, uh, on the same on the same discussion of earlier, it's it's pretty cheap to put together something like that. Whereas if you wanted to purchase a heavy tether, like a tether sand thing, I saw one at the AMS conference in the exhibit hall that they wanted $25,000 for it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and yeah. yeah, maybe they could go a few kilometers higher than me, but... <laughs> like I don't have twenty five thousand dollars hanging around. <laughs> I get this battery in a milk crate, guys. <laughs> Fifty bucks right there. 
The battery weighs about 50 pounds. It's a it's one of those heavy ones. It can power that fishing reel for hours. That's I've awesome. had some I've had fishermen come up to me on the beach and say like, "Oh, that's such a nice reel." <laughs> Like, yep. So, Shannon is intimately familiar with uh, with these batteries because in <laughs> geophysics we lug them up mountains. Yep. To go do seismic surveys, <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, I remember definitely teaching the the section on doing like resistivity surveys and telling the students, okay, we're going to take those six car batteries all the way up there. And they're like, and the looks nope. of utter disbelief. I'm a geologist. <laughs> <laughs> not a donkey exactly <laughs> oh man but, well, Shannon, you have to carry around a chainsaw so. i do i do have to carry around a chainsaw and lots of water the water gets ridiculously heavy too so i understand yeah. so, so you've mm-hmm. got this reel and battery set up and what's the process like for deploying and taking measurements Okay, so yeah, first I want to make sure that the kite will fly well in the wind conditions on that day. So first thing I do is I set up this tripod with the battery and the milk crate and the the electric fishing reel and I send the kite out to maybe about 500 meters just to make sure that it's pretty steady and that there's enough winds up high. Because sometimes there will be strong winds down low and then up high there's a bit of a lull. So I need to make sure that there's winds all the way through the atmospheric column. Then I... I have these little instruments. I call it the mini GNI. GNI stands for Giant Nucleus Impactor, which is the name of the the name of the instrument on the aircraft. So giant nucleus, so a giant cloud condensation nuclei. Giant nucleus impactor, because the the salts particles impact onto the slide. And it's a but piece it's of mini glass, because right? it's my mini one. <laughs> um, no, it's a it's like a oh the slide itself is polycarbonate. Oh, okay, interesting. Um, but it is a little bit like those slides that you used in middle school to look at things under a microscope. It mm-hmm. is a little bit like that, but smaller. Um, and the the thing the mini GNI is made out of a three D printed plastic, and it's driven with an Arduino, which is one of those tiny computers. And the Arduino inside of the inside of the 3D printed plastic um, gets attached to the kite line with a carabiner, and then I let the line out, and the instrument goes up into the atmosphere. Once it's at the height that I want, then I have a radio connection to the ground, a long-range radio connection, and I press open. And what happens is up on the kite string for that instrument that's already been attached, that's now at a few hundred meters height, a door opens and exposes the slide to the free atmosphere. Then salt impacts onto the slide. I leave it there for, depending on the wind conditions, if there's really strong winds and really big waves, maybe I only leave it there for five minutes. But if the winds are low and the ocean looks really flat, then maybe I'll leave it up there for 15 or 20 minutes. But when it's done, when I think, okay, hopefully we got enough salt, then I push a button on the ground and it closes the door up high, which brings the slide back into into an enclosed environment. And then I turn on my electric fishing reel and reel in my fish. So how long so, does it take to develop this whole th- process? I mean, you've got 3D printed 
design, you've got the electronics, you've got all the, the code that has to run on those and testing it, which I'm sure is a lot of fun uh, when things go wrong and it's way up there and you've got to reel it all the way back down. So what, I, I imagine that was quite, a, quite an R&D process. <laughs> Yeah, so the first year I didn't have this instrument, the Mini GNI. I just was practicing using the kite. And even that was a learning curve. My first master's students and I, we got into some like rough situations because <laughs> one, I didn't know how to fly a kite very well. And two, I didn't really know where. <laughs> And so I have, <laughs> we have, we have lost the kite offshore and I had to swim for it. And then the lifeguard <gasps> thought that I was drowning and then like came to save me because I was swimming in my clothes, right? Like I wasn't wearing my bathing suit because I didn't expect to swim. But when the kite goes down in the water, you go for it. <laughs> so I just like ran out into the ocean to get the kite. Um, another time I, I thought, oh, I'll fly the kite from the top of a mountain so we can get up higher. <laughs> but what I didn't think about was the fact that the airflow on the, on the backside of the mountain goes down. And so this kite was flying, but I, but we couldn't see it because it was below the ridge line on the other side. <laughs> and then it got oh. caught in like, in like all these tree branches and I was climbing through this Oh, it was it was a mess. <laughs> so that probably took about a year to figure out where to fly the kite from and what type of kite to use. I also tried a whole bunch of different types of kites before I found this this Delta box kite combo. <laughs> wow. And then, and then, yeah, what you're describing, John, is the R&D that comes along with creating this mini GNI, which is a 3D printed thing that we had multiple versions in different shapes and then the code that exposes the slide. I'd say the biggest problem and the one that I that we still sometimes have problems with is that sometimes the door doesn't close on the like it doesn't bring the slide back in. And when that happens, it's kind of just a throwaway slide. So so the issue is that we want to measure the sea salt aerosol size distribution at one altitude. Oh, okay. But if you expose the salt the salt slide up at 500 meters and then it the door doesn't close and you have to bring that slide in you're like basically like mixing up all of the altitudes it's been exposed that whole time and so that still happens um we have to take the instrument apart and sand it down try to make the, the edges really smooth in hopes that it won't get stuck the next time but yeah pretty much the software works 100% of the time. If you push the button and it receives a signal, it will do something. Um, but the, so, the moving parts are the issue. So, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of different things here. You've got to do the 3D CAD to, to actually design the thing so it can be 3D printed. And then there's the programming, which the Arduino language is really just C++ with some nice wrappers on it. So, I mean, did, did you learn all these different things or did your grad students learn all these things or did you have like did you t go talk to the mechanical engineering department and say, Hey, we need, we need some help with, with getting this thing 3d printed. What, what did that process look like? Kind of a combination of all of those things. So I've had a lot of luck in the past by presenting things at conferences and saying, hey, I'd really like to do this thing, but I'm not really sure how. So if you have any ideas, get in contact. 
And so the first part was actually from, I presented a poster at the AMS, the American Meteorological Society Conference. I believe it was January 2018. And at that conference, I met someone who had some ideas for the design of how this could all be done. And he helped me with the initial 3D print design in Fusion 360, which is a kind of like an AutoCAD program. Um, the Arduino code, I started myself. And then when it got too complicated, the, the same person who had helped with the, the AutoCAD type drawing also helped with the Arduino. Um, but yeah, I have a friend who's an engineer in the engineering department who helped me tweak some of the designs. And now it's pretty much run by my, by my students. So I have very little to do with the tweaking of the code now to two years later. Um, once the basics were there, they can figure out how to modify things to make it work better in the future. Right. It's, it's always weird when a project that you started goes out beyond to the point where you're like, I don't actually know everything that's going on in here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I should mention that that's how I met you, John, is because I, <laughs> I gave a presentation at, I think it was January 2019 at the AMS conference. And I said, I'd really like to measure wind speed. And you came up to me after the conference and the after the question session and said, oh, I have some really cool ideas of how this could be done. And so I've had a lot of luck with that. And, and you're absolutely right that I, I can't personally do every single part of this project because it involves everything from design, coding, and then also the field components and implementation and then data analysis and uh, so many things. And I can't personally do all of that myself. Right. And I don't think anybody can and do it and do it well. Like you just can't do everything. And it's been a it has been something that was hard for me after going like from grad school and then into work and then doing, doing what I do now saying like, okay, I have to pass some things off to other experts because it's, it's best to do what you're good at. Oh, I still can't do it. It's so hard. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's so hard, but it's such like an important thing that I don't think people realize about science, right? EO Wilson had a he did a great speech about this and he's like you know yeah okay you don't have to know the math if you need the math go find a mathematician they're just waiting for you to ask them to do things and it's like that's how science advances and i don't think you can say it enough because of people like us that refuse to relinquish control <laughs> you know <laughs> and so it's like it's that's how stuff gets done because i'm sure allison you could never get as much done as you do if you were doing it yourself and that's okay. That's why students exist and colleagues exist, right? <laughs> Not just students. Yeah, but I think, I think everybody should do what they're good at. Right. And then find people who are good at those things that they need to collaborate. Yeah, I agree. That's exactly how science gets done. Mm -hmm. Well, and we're sort of tangentially starting to hit on the fact that, yes, you know, as a professor, you, you do research, but there's also a lot of other components to it. And one of those is trying to bring students in and educate them on how this whole process works. And you're talking about things you don't learn in grad school. And man, that is something you don't learn in grad school yeah. is how to delegate and, <laughs> and manage a project. That's right. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, my PhD advisor is, is a brilliant mountain meteorologist, but he had no idea what I was doing when I was coding. <laughs> like, he used Fortran, but he never used MATLAB or anything more advanced. And so, but it, but it was amazing. He had no idea, like, what I was coding or what I was doing, but he could tell if it was right or wrong. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> just enough to be dangerous (laughs) yeah like it was like he didn't know exactly what I was doing but he knew what the results should be and so he could very easily say you know something's wrong here you should have another look but but he couldn't necessarily look at my code and find it Mm -hmm. and so he he was a he was an amazing advisor but he delegated really well (laughs) and he got his (laughs) students to do the things that he didn't know how to do (laughs) yep excellent (laughs) yeah so were there are there any other projects that you're involved with right now that you think would would be interesting to folks that are listening yeah i um i have a couple things going on there there's this sidearm looking at sea salt aerosols but then a lot of my other work is focused on extreme precipitation in mountain settings so in particular i will be in taiwan this summer with a field campaign called PRECIP, which stands for the Prediction of Rainfall Extremes Campaign in the Pacific. Oh my goodness. <laughs> you always have to have a catchy title. Exactly. <laughs> That's or pretty good. acronym. Yeah. <laughs> this yeah. one works pretty well, though. It prediction does. of Rainfall Extremes. Yeah. <laughs> so what we're going to do is we're going to bring this big radar. It's an S-pole radar. It takes about eight trucks, like, you know, those, those truck containers, eight of those to fit this one radar. And it'll be sent over to Taiwan and set up and we'll hopefully measure some extreme precipitation. And, and I should say that it's, it's always tricky when you talk about these kinds of things, right? Cause it's like, I don't necessarily want Taiwan to get extreme precipitation, but they do every year. And so that's why we're going there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> of course, every year, but the year you set up stuff there, but yeah. <laughs> Perhaps. This that is has how happened. field campaigns work. Yeah, exactly. This is how field campaigns work. Yeah. Yeah. We'll be there from we'll be there from late May to early August, which captures the end of their monsoon season called the Mayu season, and also the beginning of the the peak of typhoon season. Oh. So hopefully we'll get some extreme precipitation so that we can the the, the idea is that we want to try to understand the processes that make precipitation extreme. Like, is extreme precipitation just all of, like, imagine you're making a cake and you add more chocolate, then it gets more chocolatey. Well, if you're, if you have a rainstorm and you add more moisture, will it get more extreme? Or are there other things that are involved in making this event quote unquote extreme? Does that make sense? That seems like it's, going to be very hard to figure out what the other things could be yeah but it's not we won't just have the radar we have the the s-pole radar which will be in chinshu on the west side of taiwan then we have one on the east side on an island called yonaguni which is actually a japanese island then we'll also get the the noaa p3 aircrafts one of the hurricane hunters mm-hmm. will make it out for a couple of research flights and i believe there's also an aircraft from japan and also one from korea from South Korea that will come and help with our efforts. And so it's not just the ground-based part. There's also aircraft-based 
uh, research instruments. And so, yes, you're, you're absolutely right. It is kind of like a can of worms uh-huh. and that I'm sure there are many other things that can be involved, but hopefully we'll be able to, to look at all of the ingredients to a rainfall event and determine which ones are most important for making it more, ex- more extreme or a heavier rainfall event. That is interesting. So what makes an S-pole radar the right the right hammer for this? Well, what's special about it that you hope to be able to, to get something out of its data? So in particular, the S-pole radar has a, pretty, a relatively long wavelength. So the radar beam can travel quite far. And what we'll do is we'll join the S-pole radar up with a Ka band radar. So the, S, the S-band is a long wavelength and a Ka band is a shorter wavelength. And when you combine the two together, the Ka band, or the shorter wa- wavelength band, um, gets attenuated faster. So the signal deteriorates quicker than the S-pole longer wavelength one. So when you combine the two together, you can learn something about the, the amount of liquid water that's in your cloud, or some of the more specific microphysical properties that you can't understand by just looking at one wavelength. Okay, yeah. So. I mean, an, an S-band is, I want to say somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 centimeters. Yeah, I was so going to say that, 10 too. Yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty big, pretty big wavelength, pretty big sampling bin. I don't remember what KA is, but centimeter-ish or sub maybe. Yeah, I should, I should know this, but it's one of those things that I always just look up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah, I think S-band is about 10 centimeters and maybe KA-band is around one centimeter. Yeah. Right. Ball, ballpark. Uh, yeah, it's it's order of magnitude, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there we go. It's it's ones of centimeters and it's tens of centimeters. We we must be close. Ah, ah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you've got all these projects going on, and you've talked about training your students. So how do you balance all of these different things as a professor? You know, doing the research, and then we haven't even talked about teaching and training students and doing all of all of the things at once. I know the advantage of being a professor is you get to choose which 80 hours a week you work. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, how does that, how does that look like for you? Yeah. So I try to think about the future of my students' careers and where they will, where they will end up, you know, five or 10 years from now. And you want to give students a good baseline that they can then take with them to their future careers. So I try to get my students to do some modeling, some numerical modeling. I try to get them to do some observations. And I try to give them lots of opportunities to build confidence in presenting and speaking in front of people. Because communication is a really big deal when it comes to science. Too many scientists kind of hide in their offices and don't talk about it. And it takes practice to get good and to get comfortable doing that. Hence our podcast. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know if you found this. I definitely found this. I thought, okay, I've been a student for a long time. I understand what studenting is like, right? I'm going to be this professor now and it'll be fine. I actually kind of struggle a little bit with um, making that connection, you know? Like it's when you're... A younger professor, and especially me, I didn't 
change institutions. I got a job at the institution I got my PhD at. Um, so it was very odd where I had students that I was their TA and now I'm their professor. And I found it difficult to finally sort of get into the groove of managing other people. And that came as a big surprise to me as a new professor. Yeah, I've definitely, I don't think I'm perfect at that. But one one advantage that I have, I think, for teaching and mentoring is that I still remember what it was like for me to be a student. Mm -hmm. And so I can, you know, if I'm teaching, I'll be like, oh, I was always really frustrated when my professors would do this. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I try really hard not to do that thing. (laughs) That is true. There are two types of new professors, the the ones that are like, I got really frustrated when they did this, so I'm going to do it now. And then once you try to fix it, I guess that's true. Oh, no, I'm the exact opposite. I'm like, this happened to me and it drove me nuts. So I'm going to not do that thing. (laughs) And and I think one of the things about teaching is professors don't realize that the goal of learning shouldn't be for the student to figure out what they need to learn. They like learning should be about learning, yes, not about deciphering, <laughs> deciphering <Exactly>. intent. <laughs> so. I thought that's all I learned in college. <laughs> that's very true. And so, for mentoring, when I talk to my students, both teaching and mentoring, I try to be really clear of my expectations. Like, this is where we're at. This is where I want you to go in the next week. And this is the long-term vision that I have for your project. But I want them to have some buy-in and to have some, like, I want them to have to participate in that, in that goal and vision as well. And that's the part that I find trickiest is figuring out what my students are good at and making sure the tasks match up to their interests and their, their talents, Hmm. really. Okay. That's excellent. Um, this is, see, you saying that it's not about deciphering intent makes me think that I have to rethink my whole spiel on this isn't high school. I'm not giving you a study guide for the test. <laughs> uh, but that's just, that's an existential problem I'll have to deal with after the podcast. <laughs> I do give my students studies. <gasps> But they're usually just lists. They're lists of all of the topics that we covered. Oh, okay. All right. So it's like, here's a study guide. Ha ha, suckers. It's the whole class. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite, but sure. <laughs> Is that going to be the last item on your list, on your study guide, Shannon? Yeah. Uh-huh. Exactly. Yeah. I that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> They'd all laugh and be like, yep, that's that's my professor. <laughs> Exactly. You should give them extra credit for listening to your podcast and be like, oh, if you write this word on your exam, you'll get five points. Oh, girl, you think I haven't done that? I've totally done that. (laughs) (laughs) We've definitely given out test answers. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yes. Last semester, it was real bad because, um, yeah, one of my students told the whole class, she was like, if you guys just listen to her podcast, she talks about what she's going to talk about on the test. That's awesome. Because we started, you know, Shannon said uh, we were trying to figure out what to talk about one week, which never happens most weeks. <laughs> and uh, Shannon said, oh, you know, we're talking about this in class. Maybe we could expand on that some. And during the course of that would say things like, well, you know, I always ask this. And, you know, this is a great question for students. And then we realized that 
a significant fraction of her class was listening. It was great. (laughs) (laughs) But hey, you know what? They probably learned that stuff better. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. (laughs) So what are some of the courses that you've been teaching? So every fall I teach what's my favorite class. It's called Atmospheric Processes and Phenomena. And it's it's a 200 level, so it's designed for second year students. And it's both a combination of kind of intro atmospheric sciences, but it's also quantitative. It requires you to use algebra, but not calculus. <laughs> and so the, the reason that I love it is because you can do some really cool, simple calculations that are quantitative and help to describe the atmosphere, but aren't too complicated that they're you know, hard to understand. And so I'll do things like um, calculate the buoyancy of my paperweight and actually have the students, you know, learn how to do that. Or we can calculate the height of the building that we're in using pressure measurements, using a barometer. And like some of those really fun, simple calculations show you that it, it really is a physics based thing. It's just applied to fluids in the atmosphere. So that one's my favorite because it gets a pretty broad audience. It has um, earth science students, geology students, oceanography students, and they are required to take this atmospheric sciences class. So I see it as like my opportunity to potentially steal some majors from other disciplines. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I see it as like my opportunity to teach them some atmospheric sciences because they are interested in earth sciences, but they just don't know it yet. poacher um i like it (laughs) yeah um and then every other year i teach an instrumentation class for atmo or atmospheric sciences students and in that class we every single week go out and measure something with a different instrument and it's a writing based class so they have to write lab reports every single week which is good for them because it's the only writing class in our department and by the end, they can write some darn good lab reports. <laughs> so <laughs> that's awesome. Um, that is yeah, really and, cool. That that does not sound like most instrumentation. No, classes. it wasn't mine for sure. <laughs> yeah, I keep really wanting to have the students build a weather station and have that be part of the class, but it hasn't happened yet. But one day it will. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, you should check out the, uh, you probably already know, the, the 3D Pause project that Inkcar yeah, did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, I know all about 3D Pause, 3D printed automated weather stations. Yes. It's pretty cool. Um, yeah, and then the, the last class, so I've also taught Atmo 101, and then the, the last class that I'm actually teaching now for the first time is a, a class on mountain meteorology for graduate level students. That sounds so fun. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. Do you guys actually? I, so I imagine that's a very different course development <laughs> process. The, the the one grad course that I developed was the most work I have done, including writing <laughs> my dissertation. <laughs> oh. Yes, it is turning out to be a rough semester so far for me. <laughs> <laughs> But it's also because the the class that I taught in the fall, it was my third time teaching it. And so the amount of prep I had to do was 
almost nothing compared to the previous two years. And now I'm starting a new class again. And it's just, yeah, I'm not used to it. Okay. <laughs> so I, I, I think it would be interesting to just briefly chat about what it's like teaching meteorology and talking about weather and climate in somewhere like Hawaii, where your entire existence revolves around things like weather and climate because of the environment that you're in. You're in some very unique ecosystems there. Uh, and I would imagine that's probably different than how you might think about it somewhere else. Yeah, one thing that immediately popped into my mind when you said that is sometimes I talk about different types of precipitation, like grapple or hail or snow or dendrites. And some of the students that are in my class have never seen snow before. And it's just that's like, mind blowing. It's really hard. <laughs> it's mind blowing. Yeah. <laughs> To a Massachusetts girl, it's mind-blowing <laughs> that you've never seen snow before. <laughs> right. and, but in the general public, I'd say the level of knowledge and interest in weather is much higher than anywhere I've ever lived, I th which I think is what you were referring to. Like, people know what trade winds are, and people know what orographic precipitation is. They expect it to be wetter on the windward side and drier on the leeward side. And so they may not they may not know the physics for why, but they definitely have an interest and knowledge about those things that I think if you grew up on the mainland or Massachusetts, for example, <laughs> you may not have it. I, I didn't even know what windward meant when I started grad school. Do you know what windward means? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I got it. <laughs> I always forget it, though, and I get really scared when I start saying Lee and Stoss in class that I'm going to mess them up every single time, no matter what. <laughs> and so Windward's a much better idea than Stoss. <laughs> um, that's really interesting. That was an interesting question, John, because it's like in Oklahoma, obviously, there's a lot of meteorology buy-in, too. Um, but it seems kind of different because, well, my freshman meteorology class was 230 people and we graduated 39 of us <laughs> because people are right. like yeah you know there was this tornado when i was little and i love tornadoes and tornadoes are great but then you realize that meteorology isn't just tornadoes right it's all this math and so you lose all these people but it's definitely more people are more weather aware here it's weird to think of that maybe other places they aren't as much so Hmm. I don't know if you yeah, – was that like that in Pennsylvania? Uh, well, Pennsylvania, I mean, pretty much you could think Seattle, copy and paste in minus 20 oh, degrees. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, <laughs> in the winter anyway. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't think there's a lot of interest there. But uh, when we had a, a conference that was focused on instrumentation uh, over in Hawaii, there was uh, – and I, I'm still a member. <laughs> there's the, the Puna Weather Facebook group where Harry Durgeon writes these – very in-depth and technical discussions of weather events going on in the islands. And he's a non-specialist, but has become very educated in meteorology and was at this conference to help a bunch of instrumentation geeks know what we should be looking for and what would be helpful. And uh, I found that whole community was very, very interested from an agricultural standpoint, from a, just a general interest standpoint even. 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, trade winds, precipitation. Also, the, the Big Island had been emitting sulfur dioxide for decades until recently, and that's called VOG or volcanic smog. And that's a general term that the National Weather Service would use in their discussions because the local people know what VOG is. And then it became clear that they actually needed to put it into the National Weather Service, like, you know, U.S.-wide description because they weren't allowed to use terms that were local or something like that. But anyway, VOG is something that people here know about because it affects their life. And right. yeah, it's some, something like tourists think, oh, it's hazy. And you're like, nope, that's volcanic that's smog. Awesome. Fog. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, since the 2018 eruptions, the amount of emissions have really reduced. And so it's not it's not really an issue anymore. But there, when I first moved here in 2017, there were days that it kind of feels like you're having an allergic reaction to something. You know, your sinuses are like, eh, something's not right. Maybe your eyes feel itchy. And it's literally pollution from <laughs> the volcano on the Big Island, which is super yeah. far from here. And it would just waft in the trade winds over towards That's the other islands. Affect visibility. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, as a geologist, uh, I yes, think that's uh, yeah. cool. <laughs> we have a, John and I have a mutual friend who, it was great, he, <laughs> we had friends who were meteorology professors that moved to the Big Island right before all the eruptions started, and then we had another friend who is a geophysicist, and so he was super excited, and he got a job at the, <laughs> at the HVO, so the Hawaii Volcanoes <laughs> Observatory, and it's, the eruption stopped like two days before he moved to Hawaii to start his new job. It was just, I know. Oh, no. It was like, oh, I'm so sorry. Those, those meteorologists so were there sad. for it, though, so there you go. Yeah, during the eruption, I was so excited. There were these things called pyrocumulus, which was basically cumulonimbus clouds like driven by the heat mm. of the eruption. Yeah, we did a we did a weird cloud show just a couple of weeks ago, and that it was sparred by those um, all the pyrocumulus pictures coming out of Australia. So, yeah, it's unbelievable. Oh yeah, yeah, unbelievable. I'm, but, this is also making me feel another geology exactly. ABCs <laughs> episode. Yeah. Oh, it's coming! I've got some saved. <laughs> I get vogue. <laughs> Oh boy. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah, the other thing is a lot of the meteorology students that we get in our program, they come to us because they're interested in waves. Oh. Because they're surfers. Wow. That's interesting. Hmm. Yeah. They they want to learn about weather because they want to learn about how the waves are generated that they surf on. Which was quite a surprise for me at first moving here what that the people would be interested in it or yeah, that there were so many waves <laughs> um no that that waves would be a primary draw ah, to study yeah. meteorology that's, that's really cool hmm. but i think i've also learned a lot about waves since being here yeah <laughs> so it comes hand in hand in hand the surf culture is definitely right. <laughs> prolific Right. But I mean, that means you can walk around in flip flops so, and shorts and not look weird all the time, right? <laughs> yep. Yep. 
Yeah, students wear their bathing suits to class sometimes. So, like, with, oh, with other clothes my on gosh. Um, but you're like, did you come from the beach just now? <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> wow. <clears throat> I'm going to rethink my um, job prospects, I think. <laughs> yeah. It's not even that close, either. It's It's... I mean, it's close. It's, I think, two miles oh, as the mm-hmm. crow flies, but it takes a good maybe 15, 20 minutes on a motor scooter or the bus to get there. So it's not like it's, you know, yeah. right outside I, It's the much door, closer but... than the nine hours it takes me to get to the beach, though. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, much closer. <laughs> I mean, come on, you can go to... Uh... To, uh, to like Dirty lake Bird, there, mm-hmm. yeah, Lake Thunderbird. Sure <laughs> yes, uh. oh, it's sort of the same thing. Sigh. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so, well, one question that we always like to like to ask people is, you know, looking forward, nobody, I don't think anybody, could have predicted ten years ago where their field would be now. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's fun to think about. So <laughs> where do you think that the field of atmospheric science is going to be in the next 10 years? All right. I'd like to think that our weather forecasts will become more and more accurate. <laughs> and so maybe we'll be able to predict more than a couple days out. Um, but in general, I think that instrumentation is getting smaller and smaller and cheaper and people can do it themselves. And so I see this revolution of the way that we measure the atmosphere and the way that we observe it. Also satellite instrumentation is getting better and better. So like global precipitation monitoring and things like that are getting better. I I hope, so when I say my field in the next 10 years, I'm thinking of atmospheric sciences, but I really see atmospheric sciences as the underpinning of like why, why climate change or why global warming is occurring. Like I think that using knowledge of atmospheric sciences, we can understand the physics and dynamics behind the changes that are occurring to hopefully better predict and mitigate and understand global changes like that as well. So I don't know that it's where I think it'll go. Maybe that was more of where I hope it'll go. But I hope so too. I that sounds great, actually. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. that's a. I I think that's a really great aspiration for where where, where this should go and where it needs to go. Uh, if folks want to follow you and your research, what is the best way that you would like to be found on the internet? Um, there's a couple ways. So I have a personal, well, it's a, it's not, not a personal webpage, but it, I manage it. My work webpage is www.allisonnugent.com. That's Allison spelled with one L. So A-L-I-S-O-N-N-U-G-E-N-T.com. I also, I'm most active on my Instagram. I post pictures of tropical clouds almost daily. Um, my Instagram name is cloudyday. Two four cloudy day twenty four, and then I also have a Facebook page, Doctor Allison Nugent, that you can follow me on. Mostly, I just post when I have some free time and when there's some interesting weather occurring. I'll kind of explain what's going on. A lot of local people in the Hawaiian Islands follow me, but maybe you can, maybe people outside of Hawaii can also learn something about tropical weather. 
Yeah, I think we might have some listeners that do that. We've got some that are pretty active on social media. And the more and more people that tell me that they use Instagram make me think I should go click the forgot my password link. <laughs> yeah, you totally should. <laughs> Get with the now, John. That's what all the kids are doing. <laughs> well, then there was then there was the the Snap Talk and the the Face Twitter and, and all I, that. I know you and you keep updating your MySpace page, but it's just <laughs> yeah. I migrated it from Zanga and <laughs> AOL Instant Messenger and MSN yeah. Messenger. Yeah, I still remember all my Zanga stuff. That's great. <laughs> Yes. Uh, yep. Okay, well, I'm going to wow, go buy Instagram the... for dummies. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I really like Instagram because I can just post a beautiful picture. And then what I, I like to try to tell people about different cloud names. So I'll always put like what kind of cloud it is in the picture and where it is, maybe that kind of information. So you can learn something from, from looking at my pretty pictures. See, that's that's fantastic. My Instagram is all like science people and beer people. So, yeah, it's great. <laughs> I mean, I just feel like mine's going to be, you know, hashtag another green circuit board. Uh, yep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, we'll see. We, we might have some uh, some interesting stuff to put on there. But you can so, hold uh, the circuit board up to a pretty cloud and then you have a pretty cloud. There you go. <laughs> Uh, see she's an influencer yeah (laughs) oh boy well yep or you can pose behind the circuit board oh nobody wants that nope nobody wants that at all just teasing Uh, well before things get too far off the rails i think it's time to move on over to everybody's favorite segment of the show Fun Paper Friday. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, that was our cowbell from from listener Steve. Uh, We have to to trade out the cowbell sometimes. Uh, (laughs) And this week we actually have a paper that comes from... Hey, wait, John. That cowbell's from from Tim, not Steve. No, this one is from Steve. Oh! Yes. Oh, sorry. Well, we have multiple (laughs) cowbells here. I thought it sounded like the Tim Calvell, and uh, I didn't want you to give credit where it wasn't due. <laughs> My apologies, Steve. <laughs> but So this week, a listener, Daryl, sent in the fun paper, which is determining fingerprint age with mass spectrometry imaging via ozonolus of triglycerol. <laughs> I'm terrible at these names. It is really hard to say. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Ozonolysis. What's what's the correct way to say this, Shannon? Ozonolysis. Okay. Of of. Go ahead. Go ahead. (laughs) Oh, oh, hold on. This is uh, triacylglycerols. Wait, can I try? Sure. Triacylglycerols. I think it's triacylglycerols. Ooh, that sounds way better. That does sound pretty good. That was the one I wanted you to pronounce because I sat here for quite some time and I'm like, how do you get C-Y-L-G-L-Y? Like, I just couldn't make it work. (laughs) Uh, So clearly we're going to have an in-depth discussion (laughs) of this paper. Clearly. I love it. Like, we're all PhD people, everybody. And you, ooh, let me try that (laughs) dumb chemistry word. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, but this is actually pretty cool, right? 
Yeah, and so it's Hinners et al. and analytical chemistry. And it's uh, something that we'll probably see on CSI, whatever town they're doing now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so Allison, what was your rough, rough take on this paper? Because <laughs> I, I got a one sentence summary out of this that I that I got out of it. But what, what did you think about it? Um, I was going to repeat your one sentence summary, which is that using fingerprints, you can determine using ozonolysis how old the fingerprint is, which is pretty cool. So if you like, you know, in the movies where they take their fingerprint off of like a wine glass or something, you could probably see how long ago you touched the wine glass. Yeah. And I, I think, well, what I gathered was, I mean, I can't imagine walking in somewhere and you're trying to take fingerprints and it's like, that's great, but there's probably a billion other fingerprints everywhere. So how do you even, yeah, how do you even try to sift through the massive number, you know? And so I would think that this would help do that as well, because I guess through ozonolysis, <laughs> these chemicals in your fingers, you know, change. Some of them degrade but then some of them become more apparent in mass spectrometry as time goes by. And so you can be like, okay, all these fingerprints are more than a week old. We don't care about them. We can throw out those 300 and just focus on these, you know, 50 fingerprints or something like that if it's in a public place. Yeah, and this uh, the figure two in this paper where they show the, the different compounds and their concentration mapped using this MALDI MS technique. Uh, over day zero to day seven that they look kind of like me and I, I guess it's because of the the color scale but it's sort of like a thermal you know like you would touch something and then mm -hmm. the heat it's sort of what it looks like here like you can watch certain compounds fade away and other compounds become more prevalent as they react with ozone and decompose into these other products uh, but again looking at this technique this is mass spec on steroids and rastered which is definitely not yeah. something that i'm qualified to talk about here <laughs> me neither well it's chemistry so everybody knows i'm not qualified to talk about that <laughs> i didn't even also, know that you could do mass spectrometry imaging yeah that's kind of mm -hmm. what blew me away with this is that they're they're rastering this laser beam at what do they say it's about a, a 30 micron spot size mm-hmm yeah, that's yeah. amazing that is amazing this is pretty cool i mean i thought this was really neat and obviously this is a huge deal for forensics right um i don't i, I guess this is the first it said that people have tried to do this before but they haven't I didn't quite get this, John. I don't know if you picked up on it. it. I guess whatever technique it was would sort of damage the fingerprint beyond being able to use it or something like that. So they haven't been able to get good data from figuring out what how old fingerprints are. Yeah, and like there was one based on diffusion of something. Uh -huh. uh, and they're like, this works great, except it totally depends on whatever the substrate the fingerprint is on is that influences right. the diffusion rate. So unless you fully characterize the substrate, good luck. And right. there's one about like the degradation of ridge and valley patterns over time. So there's quite a few 
different techniques that were tried that all seemed pretty simple compared to this, but I guess once you have the fancy machine to do this, in theory, it could be straightforward. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, this seems really cool, even though there were a lot of words that I very much skimmed over and appreciated their liberal usage of, um, you know, just... What are those things that you call when people make words shorter? <laughs> An abbreviation. Um, Great, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh no, you mean you mean um, like when you use the first letter of each word? Acronyms. Yeah, is that that's it? The one. Is that the word? I'm yeah, for? acronyms. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. I really yeah. I have a proposal due in two days. <laughs> so I very much appreciated. Uh, somebody had pointed out to me a while back, and I'm trying to remember the distinction here. An acronym had to make a, yes, that's what, okay. An acronym has to be a pronounceable thing and an initialization is not. I think that was the distinction. Really? Ooh. Yes. Cause I said something about fancy. Well, like NASA's, NASA's an acronym, but CSI is an initialization or something like that. Cause I said something was an acronym and they go, actually, I was like, oh, I, I appreciate <laughs> the grammar snobbery here. Uh, <laughs> I had no idea. I've never heard that before. Yeah, that's real interesting. An initialization. Hmm. Yeah. So I, I have not fact checked this, so I could have been completely getting messed with, but it sounded believable. <laughs> yeah, I could believe I it. I really hope this is a thing. Yeah. Hmm. I, I really All appreciate right. it in here, like figure one as well. You could see, so they've got these different... I like the fresh profile and the three-day and the seven-day profile. And though I have no idea what the x-axis on this plot is, it's uh -huh. m over z. Yeah, I was going to say, I know what it is. It's m over z. <laughs> <laughs> it says so right there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. So... It, uh, I mean, you can definitely see like a decay of this. You see peaky things, and then they get less peaky and shift to the left. Science, but it looks Science. like the fresh one and the three day one is about the same. Uh, yeah, there was some. Yeah, they said in here something about three days was like the turning point for these fingerprints. Hmm. Which I have no idea why, but that was interesting. And I, what these things are that they're doing, I mean, they do this with like lipids and stuff, which is something, I mean, people use ancient plant lipids. So imprints of leaves and stuff like this, like the waxes off of leaves to figure, to do dating of rocks too. So this is interesting that that is something that's already done with rocks and leaves <laughs> that they're now using with fingerprints. Yeah. And so I guess, let's see, so lipids, that'd be like fatty, long chains of stuff. And so I guess, yeah, you could break that mm -hmm. down somehow. They've got right. a a figure that's called Scheme 1, which shows the proposed reaction mechanism, which looks like a nightmare of Ochem. Oh, this, yeah, th no, this figure is, no. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. That's probably when I stopped. I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm going to go to the conclusions now. <laughs> I used to look at this. <laughs> The thing that I was most curious about, and they they'd sort of addressed, is like they, they did this in a lab, and they made it sound very technical, as you do, of, you know, these these samples were, were left in ambient conditions in approximately eight hours a day of fluorescent. In other words, they were sitting on their desk. <laughs> exactly. Uh, 
<laughs> that's a pretty good description of, a, of an office. But then they did do uh, a sealed transparent container, a sealed opaque container, and ambient, and compared them and saw that contact with ambient, you know, having that air exchange is important for this. But I was really wondering what happens if you have this outside. Like, what if it's a fingerprint on a dash of a car and you have massive UV radiation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they definitely said offices without windows in there. Yeah, I would guess it would decay faster, that the signal would decay faster. Yeah, I guess so. I, yeah. Well, okay, maybe the car dash is bad because the windshield should block a lot of the UV. But yeah, I would think UV would have to have some some impact on this. And it'd be interesting to see different different subjects. Because I think, didn't they say they touched it on a, like they touched their forehead and then touched a slide? That was the yes. procedure here. Yep. Uh-huh. Touch your greasy forehead. <laughs> yeah. I feel like some of these study mechanisms make it make their way into my research too. Like my my head is itchy, and then I touch stuff. <laughs> oh yeah. Like, and then they write it up thinking. into this anal chemistry paper. Ex- you sure could. Oh. Yeah, so, I mean, you might have to be really careful about the the prep of your slides after reading this. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I could be adding some salt by dripping sweat onto the slides or something. Exactly. Get those Fritos away from those slides. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so, but Allison, you said you've had some experience with mass spec before? A little bit. I, in undergrad, I worked in a mass spec lab where we were doing helium-3-4 dating for rocks exposed in Antarctica from receding oh. glaciers. Nice. We just had a faculty meeting about this. That's awesome. <laughs> about exposure dating? Helium, helium dating and isotopic stuff and whether that, you know, talking about who we're going to try to hire next. I thought that was really cool stuff that I liked. <laughs> Well, as an as an undergraduate student, it involved spending hours inside of a lab with crushed up pieces of granite, picking things out of a tray with tweezers. Yeah, this sounds great. I don't understand why. Oh, actually, that's another reason why I went to atmospheric sciences. <laughs> it all comes full circle. Now I remember I was miserable in that lab. I hated it. Like, <laughs> like that idea of, right. of touching these rocks from Antarctica was really cool, but the actual implementation of the work and like looking in a microscope, literally I would go to the lab and spend eight hours looking in a microscope and I just really didn't enjoy it. So that science. sounds like a great Saturday to me, but okay. <laughs> okay this is why you don't always give undergrads just the crappy jobs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we lost her. (laughs) Yeah, the undergrad that worked on this project after me got to go to Antarctica to collect more rocks, (gasps) and I was so jealous. (laughs) So that's the real reason. (laughs) If it makes you feel any better, I think last year was the fifth field season that instruments I've made have been in Antarctica, but I have not yet got to go, so I told them that I'm writing no more manuals. (laughs) No more manuals until they take you, huh? Yeah, Yeah, I I will be the manual for the next piece of equipment. (laughs) Just make one catastrophically fail and, 
you know, be like, I better be there next time. Yeah. I prevented this. <laughs> it, it sounds like, um, what was it, Doug? Who who had done the, the, the Conodont study where somebody had to sit there and pick out these little... That was me. It was you that did that. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> My advisor tells the story of we were looking at these Conodonts, these little jaws of these worm thingies. And we were trying to figure out, we were looking at it in impacts. So I did my master's on impact craters, paleomagnetism of impacts. And we thought, oh, we'll look at these conodonts to see if we can tell how hot these rocks got. And so I just had to use acid and break down kilos of rocks and just pick through what was left over to find these dumb little silicified teeth. And it was... (laughs) Yeah, I'm glad it was the last thing I did because I probably also would have been like, nope, I'm out. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, and you're still a geologist. <laughs> and I'm still here, exactly. I remember, man, when I found one of those things, I went screaming down the hallway. I was so excited. And I found three. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm done. This is not This is not integral to my work. <laughs> yep, that was me. That's hilarious that you still remember that story. <laughs> yep. It was real painful. <laughs> I don't know that I was ever told that story with the fact that it was you that had done it. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh, that's hilarious. Yeah, I screamed real loud. I was so excited when I found one. <laughs> well, so I mean, this is a conodont. A conodont. Mm-hmm. They're these like little fossils, and people don't really know what they are. They say that they're the jaws of like worms, so the worms don't ever make it, right? But these little, these little silicic jaws do which is terrifying to think of like an earthworm with teeth but <laughs> yeah interesting yep. okay yeah but as you heat them up they turn colors and so they're like an excellent thermometer and so people use them um they came up with this condont alteration index and so you can say oh my conodont's slightly yellow that means it was heated to at least 200 degrees c it's pretty cool so you can determine the temperature that the conodont died during Oh no! Just the te- no, just the fossil itself. So it's just the temperature that the rocks, like the the highest temperature the rocks were exposed to ever. Oh, I see. I see. Usually during like burial or something like that. Yeah. Okay, I see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yes, they're terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yep, utterly terrible. But it it is super super <sighs> gratifying to have found them. <laughs> Well, this is a little bit of a stone's throw from uh, <laughs> fingerprints yes, and match fingerprints. But... but see, it's just science is all, it's all related, John. That's the point. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh. Uh, well, I thought this was uh, overall a really interesting paper and definitely led to an interesting, uh, if a bit abnormal discussion. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, Allison, really, thank you for taking the time to to join us on the show. It's been a pleasure talking with you and learning more about what you do. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'll have to catch up and listen to all of your podcasts. So I've got a lot of time ahead of me. (laughs) Do some studying, but (laughs) I I really enjoyed chatting with you both. And uh, I think you're both really great. So thanks so much for including me in this discussion. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Shannon, if folks have their, mass spec analysis of their own fingerprints or would like to submit images of their GCCN collider slides that they have collected uh, themselves. (laughs) How can they get a hold of us? 
You can send us those, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter, at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. Uh, You can find us on the Slack chat room. We're in the Software Underground, the Don't Panic channel. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters for keeping us in microphones and stickers for great interviews like this one you just heard. Uh, You may support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funders.